Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to... Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. Folks, the time has finally come. It's time for us here at Crack Rackets to unveil our preseason top 10 college tennis rankings heading into what promises to be an exciting 2023 season. Our plan here at Crack Rackets over the course of the next five weeks is to count down our top 10 men's and women's women's Division I teams heading into the year. We'll break down each of the team's 2022 seasons, talk about who overperformed, underperformed, got things just right, of course. We'll dive into the rosters, look at the returners, look at the new additions, project strengths and weaknesses, as well as lineups for each of these teams. We'll look at the schedules, look at the conferences, and of course, we'll offer our predictions for how we expect everything to unfold. Needless to say, we expect it to be a fun five weeks of content here at Crack Rackets. I will do my best to supplement each of these podcasts as well with interviews with the head coaches for each of these teams. Last year, we came up a little bit short of hitting all 20, but hopefully we will get to speak with each of these preseason top 10 coaches throughout the course of the year. With that said, with the theme of our college tennis preview in mind. Obviously, we got a lot of previewing to do, and as much time as I will spend personally combing through all these rosters, combing through the 2022 results, it always helps me to have some help when we're previewing the college tennis season. And joining me tonight and on every one of our top 10 women's preview podcast is a guest you will all remember fondly as he was the co-host of the deciding point last year joining me for all of our women's division one coverage of course now he's sp- uh, spawned off and done his own show he's got his own shop I should say setup shop at the no ad no problem blog of course that has turned into a podcast but perhaps above all else you know him as a returning champion here on our crack racket shows It's our dear friend, John J. Parsons. Jay, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. The top 10 countdown is now officially on. How are you feeling, my friend? I'm feeling great. This is one of my favorite things that Cracked Rackets does, that I get to be a part of. Historically, it has been just such a fun time to get you know, ready for the spring season. I have fond memories of listening to these episodes on long walks uh, during 2020 when that was all we could do in the fall here in the Bay Area. So I'm looking forward to it. I absolutely love it and uh, can't wait to dive in. I'm looking for my note for where the 2021 preseason top 10 for us was, how accurate we were last season. 
I mean, I think directionally we got a lot of things right. The only team we really missed on, which we didn't actually miss on because you had Oklahoma covered, but certainly we didn't project Oklahoma to go on to reach two national finals during the season. But no, I agree with you. I love this top 10 exercise. It allows me to gather my thoughts and refocus as we head into another exciting college tennis season, of course. Before we get into our coverage of our number 10, and women's team, we do have two things I want to discuss quickly. And by the way, that's going to be the format on each and every one of these preview podcasts. Our hope is to have two shows a week. We'll do number 10 and 9, 8 and 7, et cetera, et cetera, over the course of the next five weeks until we get to our number one team. I mentioned all the categories we're going to discuss already, but of course, at the top of every show, we'll get into any new news updates we have as they relate to the college tennis world. And we have one news update, one discussion I want to get into before we start our top 10 preview. The news update, the big announcement from Gabriel Diallo, and we talked about this on last week's show. We said logically it made a lot of sense for Gabriel Diallo to forego his college tennis eligibility, turn to the pro circuit. You look for Diallo. He's going to get into Australian Open qualifying on his own ranking. He has no points to defend until the start of June. There's a realistic world where come the French Open, Diallo should certainly be a top 200 player, but he may even be top 150, dare I say, seated in French Open qualies. Again, mathematically, logically, made a lot of sense for him to consider turning pro. You wonder if money-wise, Tennis Canada was saying, hey, we're ready to support you. Certainly, he was a part of their Davis Cup winning team. That said, he's still a young man around his best friends on a college campus, a team that has all the pieces to compete for and potentially win a national championship. All of that in mind, Diallo announces today he has decided to forego that eligibility turn pro. Jay, A, we're both immensely grateful this announcement came before we started our top 10 preview, but B, and perhaps most importantly, as disappointed as we are as college tennis fans, I think we both completely understand this choice. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very logical. I think if anything, you look at his past few years, he comes in to Kentucky in 2019, is 17 years old, tall, lanky, you know, outside the top 500 junior rankings, no ATP points. And, you know, three years later, he's within the top 230 in the world, heading to the Australian Open, as you talked about. And look, it's a big testament to the Kentucky program. In some ways, they're like, did we do too good of a job? We've gotten him for just one more year. Um, but ultimately, a testament to college tennis, the growth that he has had, both literally and figuratively, uh, on his now 6-7 frame. Just happy to have seen him flourish in college, particularly this past season with Kentucky and their run to the NCAA Finals, ultimately carry over that success this summer, this fall, to be in a position where, when he looks at the state of the world financially, as it relates to his pro success, it, it makes the most logical sense. Yeah, and certainly from a tennis perspective, Diallo proved he's ready. He won a challenger this summer, made another challenger final. It's not as though, not to be disrespectful to guys like Monday, Ferry, who have had a ton of IT, you know, even a Toby Samuel, who's had a ton of ITF level success. That's all nice and good. 
But when you have the chance to get into Sam, slam qualifying, when you have the chance of five free months of points that could realistically, if they go as well as the past six months, put you in the top 100 of the rankings. When that opportunity is there, you just have to go. And again, you know who's going to understand this decision better than anyone? Cedric Kaufman, Matt Gordon, who I'm sure said, look, we want to have you back. Of course, we'd love you. But you do what's best for you, as ultimately that's what we support. And I think the decision was pretty clear. We knew it was coming. Again, shout out to Gab for giving it to us before we started the top 10. Very nice of him. Yes, very, very kind. I'm sure he had us in mind. That's the big piece of college tennis news I wanted to discuss. Now, before we get into number 10, it is the number 10 show. How did we formulate the top 10s? I will say... For what it's worth, the voters, myself, John Parsons, Chris Halioris, and new voter Parson Damati, who is replacing our dear friend Matt Stakowiak, Matty Stacks, officially announcing his retirement. We have a really fun video planned for him, so be on the lookout for that on social media. But that said, we're the four voters. You, Chris, and I came together last week. We had the call. We worked things out. In the end, We felt we had things down to really 11 teams in the discussion for these 10 ranking spots on the women's side. And, you know, ultimately, again, we vote. We do a point system. We try to keep it as quantifiable of a process as possible. But we had ties. And in the end, the team we left out, the team that maybe we will regret leaving out, was Texas A&M. Now, I'll give the pro A&M argument as – Jay knows that's probably the side of the argument I lean. I mean, again, it's really tough because I like the USC as well. I like all of these teams. The margins are very thin. I open it up to you, Jay. Why was Texas A&M 11 in our mind? Well, can you let me make the pro Texas A&M argument for once? Uh, I feel like I got the short end of the stick with the Texas A&M argument True. this past season. Look, I'll do both. Yeah. Uh, you know, they they returned many of the components <laughs> from last season, uh, you know, in Carson Branstein at number one. Mary Stoyana, who played number three, has made a big jump this fall. Just you know, quickly, quarterfinals, right, in both All-American and fall Nats for Mary Stoyana. Quarterfinals are better. Uh, not not better. I don't think she. Yeah, I think she actually lost quarterfinals to Crawley at both. Crawley both times. She definitely <laughs> yeah. lost to Crawley both times. I was just yeah. questioning the round, but yeah, she, you know, bad draws for uh, Mary Stoyana, and you know, but but they do lose a you know a few pieces, notably in Tatiana Makarova, who with J.C. Goldsmith, one of the best doubles teams in the country, at number two, she was undefeated all year until that NCAA uh, quarterfinal against Oklahoma. Rules for ankle. By the way, changes the match. I've said it before. I'll say it again. We play the NCAAs 10 times. I swear to God, AM's walking away with the title last year, but go on. Look, AM lost two 4 3 matches last year indoors. That's a team that doesn't even have an indoor facility. Yeah. So if, if they go outdoors, you never know how these sort of things change. I think ultimately, when we were debating some of the teams in this, we were really three teams 9, 10, 11. You know, I think, yes, Texas AM brings back. A lot of pieces, not sure if they will be as strong at five and six. We have not seen freshman Mia Kupris uh, play college tennis yet. I believe she's coming in the spring. So there were more question marks for this Texas A&M team than we had for a team like USC, who we'll discuss today. Yeah, look, 
I'm, I'm blanking. It's Kupris, you said. That's how you say the last name. Uh, I just, you know, that's how we are going to say the last name, at least until <laughs> we are corrected yes. otherwise. Yeah. Um, she is very good. And yes. talking to people in college tennis circles, that is one of the notable. Was she a, an officially a top 10 newcomer on the ITNA rankings? I, I think she I, was, if memory serves me correct. I think she was as well. Yes. And so certainly we know the impact she can have. It was Townsend, right, who was six last year for them in the end. Um, yeah. who was well, obviously in and out of six previously yeah, top three player for them, but played really well for them whenever called upon last year. Look, I think they still have pieces and Gianna Pilette had a tough year last year. She's going to play lower in the lineup probably this season than she did last. And I actually think that's extraordinary help, extraordinarily helpful. And, you know, sometimes you see the sophomore slump. Sometimes you see the sophomore surge. A player who went about 500 playing four last year, moving down to six, I think that usually uh, forecasts good depth. And you mentioned it. Brandstein's really good. Um, certainly Goldsmith, we know what we're getting back. Stoyana, we know what we're getting back. This is a really solid team. The problem is when you look at the top of college tennis, who's seven, who's eight? You know, you really need to have some depth, particularly this season. And then again, when you're doing the point system, what are the locks? Brandstein's really good. If she plays one, she can certainly have success. But is she a lock of locks against the best teams in the country? Maybe not. Boy, Stoyana at two. I don't know if it's a lock of locks because there's some really good teams this year, but it's certainly in the conversation as a really good point. I don't hate Goldsmith at three a year later either. Um, but, you know, again, a point and a half team, two point team, you know, that that's why they're probably on the, you know, they're certainly not a tier one contender this year. We can explain why we like USC a little bit over them as we get into USC, but that's the question, right? Is like the, it, or that's probably the right I should say classification for them. Jay is it's a one and a half point team entering the season with some questions still lingering. Maybe two if you put one of Goldsmith or Brandstein probably wins every match. Stoyana gets a lot of wins. I guess I see two points there. Yeah, I would say maybe their number three position with Kupris or yeah. Stoyana oh, at Cooper's three is too, probably sure. going to be, you know, really close to a lock. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're usually a strong team in doubles, even though they have lost Makarova, they'll probably find the pieces there. Look, ultimately, we have 11 teams for this top 10 ranking and someone had to yeah. be excluded. And we kind of talked through some of the reasons why we liked these other teams just slightly better, better. Yeah, again, we were gonna we talked about copping out doing a tie for tenth. We decided cop outs are weak, so we just stuck with ten teams. But AM's very much in this conversation. And, you know, starting the year, both of us would be more surprised if they didn't end up hosting the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament than if they did and so oh, yeah. you know, certainly Anything after, you know, top uh, top eight, because top eight, you're hosting that NCAA round of 16, doesn't really matter. They're probably in that tier of just outside the top eight, but certainly looking in entering the season. With that said, there's your news. There's your honorable mentions. And it really was just A&M. After that, all due respect to the Michigans, Ohio States, Auburns, Arizona States of the world, who certainly will be in the top 16 conversation, but still on the outskirts of that top 10, unless they do something special, perhaps at the national indoors. But with that in mind, we are ready 
to get into our preseason top 10. And as we alluded to, the number 10 team in our Division I women's preseason poll is the USC Trojans. We went USC at number 10. Now, before we get into our projections for them in 2023, let's look back at the 2022 season, a season of peaks and valleys. It's peaks and valleys week this week on the mini break podcast, perhaps a gift from or a sign from the tennis gods that that was the right choice. USC, a lot of peaks, a lot of valleys throughout their course of their 2022 season. Obviously, started out on fire. 4-3 win over Miami at Baylor. Then the 4-3 win over Baylor during the kickoff weekend. They get to the national indoors. That's where the script sort of began to flip a little bit. They beat Wisconsin, but losses to AM, Texas, both aged well, but tough losses at that event. They then go on a streak of, I believe it's what, they lost seven of eight matches eight overall. Eight of nine. Yeah, eight of nine. You have those two losses at Oklahoma State 4-1, at Oklahoma 4-0, at UCLA 4-1, and then probably the two matches Coach Allison Swain would want back more than anything else from last year. 4-3 loss against UC Santa Barbara, 4-2 loss at Utah. Now you look for the Trojans who end the year 18-12 overall. They're 17-11 going into the NCAA selection show. They were not a top 16 seed. And I think a lot of the reason you can write back to that fact is because they did lose those matches to Santa Barbara and at Utah. When you look at this USC team, given how good they were through the national indoors, Jay, or to that national indoors, given, you know, the run Aaron Cayetano had last fall, the question I ask you, 18 and 12 overall, didn't win the conference title, you know, didn't win the Pac-12 tournament that lost to Arizona State round number one, the 4-1 loss second round to Pepperdine at the NCAA tournament in 2022. Did the Trojans underperform, overperform, or get things just right? I think they pretty clearly underperformed. And one of the takes that I had going into the 2020 season was that the USC women would finish the season ranked higher than the USC men. That did not pan out. I think coming into 2022, you know, you looked at a team that had a very strong top three. Aaron Cayetano was the number one ranked player in the country coming off of winning the fall nationals. You had Salma Ewing, who had been, you know, perennial top 40 player in the country. And you had Snow Han and rounding out the top three. I think you people felt really good about that top three. But it was really tough sledding during that kind of middle third of the season. You talked about the pre-indoor stretch, the kind of the indoors to early March, and then let's call it that Arizona State onwards when things started to turn, turn up for them. Ultimately, this was an underperformance. And one of the things that really hurt them during that six, you know, they had a six-match losing streak, they lost eight of nine, is Aaron Cayetano. She struggled in those matches for them. And this was a team that was pretty top heavy going into 2022. And so when you were not getting the sort of elite performances from Cayetano winning at one, sometimes moving down to two, not winning at two, that hurt them significantly. Yeah. I mean, just on the Cayetano note, you look at the numbers for her last season and just to any coach or SID player listening, please ask all of your SIDs to make sure the 2021 stats, 2022 stats, excuse me, are still up on your website because it just makes our life a lot easier. We'd be immensely grateful if you did it. Thankfully, you can click on the player profiles to find some stats for the Trojans. 
Cayetano last year, 39 total singles wins. Now, a ton of those came in the fall. 10-2 and two at the number two position. Pretty darn good. 6-7 and seven at the number one spot. Yeah. You're right. Like During that stretch, she went from what was the number one player in the country unequivocally to start the year, winning the insane matches at Baylor and Miami, to struggling during that middle part of the season, hitting a little bit of a bump, which, by the way, Every player is going to have it happen when you make that crack into the elitehood in college tennis because match after match, you know, we're, we're frowning upon the UCSB loss. Let's be clear. Cayetano, though it happened after the clinch, she won that match, 7-6 in the third. And, you know, you look at the Utah loss uh, for the Trojans. That one was a tough one, but Linda Huang certainly had some good wins for Utah throughout the course of the season. And so... Yeah, it was just tough because Ewing was solid last year, but sorry not to cut you off, not exceptional. Like Selma Ewing last year, 21-14 and 14 overall in singles, 11-8 and eight in dual matches. She was 5-4 and four at one, 5-4 at two. Last year, especially to start the year, you just felt like Ewing, Cayetano, two top 25 players, that could be an elite top, ten, uh, top two duo. And that's probably where the struggle started is that they weren't quite that. Yeah, I would say that compounded by the fact that they didn't have Naomi Chung in the yeah. lineup until mid-March. And, you know, you look at that when they had in mid-March, March 11th over Arizona State, who ultimately goes on to make the Pac-12 final, finishes, you know, just outside the top 16. They get a 4-1 win over Arizona State. And since that win, they go on, you know, 11-5, and five, which is much of what more what you would expect than losing eight of nine. And a big reason for that was... One, you had Cayetano kind of round back into form, but then two, for that first half of the season, USC was playing without Naomi Chung, who had pretty consistently played in that middle of the USC lineup. And I would argue is sort of a linchpin player for them that connects your Salma Ewings, your Cayetanos to the lower half of that lineup. So for her to come back and slot in at number four, she ultimately goes, you know, seven and two at that number four position. That was a big reason that USC started to rebound upwards towards the end of last year and kind of the reason we continue to see some of the trajectory maybe into the top 10 this year. Yeah, I I agree with you there. I thought USC struggled at doubles many times throughout the course of the season. You look at some of the matches they lost. UCSB, they lose the doubles point. That Utah match, they lose the doubles point. I also think part of the reason both of us would trend to the underperformed category, and I'll talk to Coach Swain. I'll ask her this question. She will be candid, I'm sure, in her answer, is that that Pepperdine match in the round of 32, I know Cayetano beat Fakuda on that day, but my memory coming out of that match, Jay, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that it was like, oh my God, like Pepperdine just smoked USC, and I remember coming out of that being like, oh, my God, is Pepperdine peaking? Like, do we now have to view them as a national championship team? Because, boy, did they take care of business in that. U- it was a tight doubles point. But then in singles, just that was probably the best match the Waves played all year. And it just felt like that's not how USC's season should have ended, particularly given how it started. And, you know, again, when you have Ewing who had, I thought, a pretty good year. or I guess you didn't have that great of a year statistically last season, but you have her as a veteran. Certainly, Danielle Wilson had a pretty solid year at the number six spot for the Trojans again, and you look uh, for Wilson last season. Actually, tough year at the number six spot. 8-11 and 11 overall, 7-10 and 10 in dual matches and singles. Still, that combination of youth, 
And then the veteran experience, Cayetano, Ewing, Wilson, uh, the freshman in Piper and Mora. You just felt like there were a lot of pieces last season. So I think underperformed is probably where you have to lean, right? Uh, solidly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that would be yeah. the final answer to that. Now, that said, you know, I mentioned Ewing. I mentioned Wilson, who did not have that great of seasons last year. Again, statistically, now looking at it more closely, again, Wilson 7-10, and 10, playing primarily at that number 6 spot, went 8-9 and nine in dual match action in doubles. Now, for Selma Ewing, again, 11-8 and eight in dual matches, but was a top two player who was at least 500. Those are always really tough players to compete. She was also playing top half of the doubles, although 9-10 and 10 overall in doubles on the year. Yes, they lose those two pieces, but boy, do they get a lot of pieces back for these USC Trojans. And obviously, it starts up top with Aaron Cayetano. And, you know, you look for Cayetano throughout the course of the fall. Wasn't quite the fall she had last year, but still looking at the numbers for Cayetano here in the fall. I don't think it's a a bad fall by any stretch of the imagination. And we can get into those stats in a second, or I guess I have them here. 11 and three overall won her last five matches of the fall. I think that's a pretty solid place to start. Um, Obviously, you look for Snow Han, and even less so what Snow Han did going 7-3 and three in her fall collegiate matches. The big thing for Snow Han was how good she was throughout the pro summer, winning two 15K titles, making another final in Cancun in August, getting really good wins over players like Salma Ewing. Davatella, her new teammate, Maddie Sieg, and uh, Rapalu over at Texas. Just a lot of good wins throughout the course of the summer. Certainly feels like she's ready to take another step forward and, you know, hopefully a little bit healthier as well. Let's not forget, Snohan spent a lot of the past two years serving underhand uh, when she's been in the singles lineup. You mentioned Naomi Chung. She's back for another year as well. Piper, Mora, a year more experienced. Let's just start with the returners before we get into any new pieces, Jay. Even before adding a SIG, it's it's a pretty good core to work with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talked about Cayetano. She also won two ITF 15Ks this summer and fall in LA and Cancun. It was a difficult collegiate fall, I would say, for her. I think um, in particular the, the fall nationals where she lost to a player from UCSB. Uh, but she also kind of sprinkled in some pro events there as well. You know, she finishes within the top 25. I, I don't know if there's any reason to be concerned uh, for for Aaron Cayetano. I imagine she'll re- rebound and and start the spring strongly. But Snow Han is sort of the re- uh, revelation, right? Particularly in the summer, as you mentioned, for her to get healthy. You know, we had seen her play well in the spring season, but certainly not a world beater at number three. And then she goes on to some of these pro events and starts to beat players that maybe you wouldn't expect her to. Um, and she's continued that even in the collegiate fall events, you know, she's now within the top 20 of the ITA rankings. So those two players alone, in absence of any newcomers, you would feel really good about both of those players anchoring the top of your lineup. I think Naomi Chung looks to be healthy, right? She's again in the ITA rankings, you haven't seen as much from um, kind of the the other three that you mentioned in Piper, Koenig, Mora, but you know they'll certainly uh, factor in towards the bottom of the lineup. Yeah, I mean Chung, to your point, ten and three in singles when she did come back. Seven uh, when she did play, excuse me, seven and two overall in dual match play last season. Yeah, again with Cayetano, Chung, 
uh, and Han, that's a pretty good top three. You feel pretty good at going in with that group against anyone. And then, again, if one of uh, Piper or Mora or even Koenig has one of those big sophomore surges, now you're feeling really good about that core coming back. And then, of course, I mean, then, of course, to supplement that core, you bring in some really impressive newcomers and probably the top newcomer in the country in Maddie Sieg, who you look went 10-1 and overall during the course of her fall play on the collegiate circuit. Of course, she also made two ITF finals throughout the course of 2022. She won a 15K in Naples, made a final of a 25K as well, has also gotten really good wins over Catherine Harrison, Reese Brantmeyer, Sarah Davitella, really good win over Hannah Chang, who has to be top 200 at this point, a good win over Jess El Sola, of course, uh, back in July as well. I mean, you had a player who is the number one newcomer, who is going to be no worse than you feel top three in the lineup, right? And that way it pushes one of a Han or a Chung down. And now you've got a really good core five, Jay. Uh, there's a lot to like about just, you know, let's start with the Sieg component, right? She's automatically a level raiser for any team. Absolutely. She's the best newcomer that we've seen play this year, right? There are other people on that newcomer list that we are waiting to see, notably one of the players Maddie Sieg beat in Reese Brantmeyer of North Carolina, we haven't yet seen. As of now, you know, and she, Maddie Sieg, she's number two in the country, right? She goes 10 and one, her only loss coming to Fiona Crawley, who everyone else has a loss to. But, you know, she plays basically two events, right? She plays the Milwaukee Tennis Classic. She wins that. She plays the fall rank spotlight uh, at NC State, where she loses in the final to Crawley. Um, and then she ends up retiring at the uh, fall nationals, which was disappointing. But yeah, I mean, she's top 500 in the world. You mentioned her ITF results. You know, she is someone that will come in and play a huge role for the Trojans and, you know, probably follow very closely in her mom's footsteps. Yeah, I mean, 23 and 17 in pro matches overall last year. She played 40 pro matches last season, was able to get all of that experience under her belt. She enters the year ranked 446 in the pro rankings. That's got to be a top 10 number, I imagine, in college tennis. I mean, you add a top 500 player to your roster, come on now. You have to be considered in the conversation. And, you know, again, with all due respect, I'm blanking on the name for Texas A&M now. Who's their freshman? Yeah, Cooperus. Yeah, Cooperus. Sieg's like the next level of freshman addition. And we even got to see her play that much more throughout the course of the fall. Of course, she's not the only addition to the roster, right? Tell me a little bit about what you know about. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Before we move on uh, to the, another freshman, I wanted to say a few things about Maddie Sieg. Uh, the first is that her mom is three-time former All-American at USC, won two NCAA team titles with the Trojans, and in the two other years finished runner-up. So it's really cool to see Maddie Sieg play you know, at her mom's alma mater, following in her mom's uh, footsteps there. That was a really cool story to learn more about Um so that'll be really fascinating to watch. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, you mentioned the other freshman that they're bringing in is Emma Charney. Emma Charney comes from South Carolina. She is a top 10 blue chip recruit uh, in the U.S. Uh, she's had a really strong fall, right? So she has gone 10 and 6 this fall, has gotten some wins, um, notably over Arizona State's number one, Julia Morlet, uh, and ultimately finishing 83 in the ITA rankings. 
Fun fact for you on Emma Charney, I guess trivia. Okay. Who were her last two matches against at Eddie Her and Orange Bowl back to back weeks? Just in 2021. Do they play in college? They do not. Okay, I'm going to go with then in 2021, who would have played the Easter Bowl? I'm going to go with Uh, Eddie Her and Orange Bowl. Oh, sorry, Eddie Her and Orange Bowl. I don't think Kruger would have played them. So I'm not non-American. Oh, it's not Schneider. It would be great if it was Schneider, but not Schneider. Yeah, I give up. Who? Fruvatova sisters. Oh, even better. Duh. Because, yeah, that's that's excellent. Yeah. Played Linda at Eddie Her and then uh, Brenda at Orange Bowl to close out her junior career. Something she might. She uh, got to play two of the greatest of all time. Exactly. Tell her kids about one day. Um, But yeah. So, you know, these are two players in Maddie Sieg and Emma Charney who are no level raisers for the USC program, the type of recruits that you expect uh, USC to bring in year after year. And now the good news is, again, I mentioned with these two additions, with Mora and Piper as well, and you look for Sloan Mora last season, certainly I'm sure a disappointing season by the standards she has for herself, 6-8 and eight overall in singles, have kind of fallen out of the lineup by the end of the year. You look for Grace Piper overall in the season, 17-23 uh, and 23 overall in singles, 11-11 11 and 11 in dual action, 6-5 and five at the 5 spot. I actually really liked Piper's freshman year. I think there's a lot, I just think foundationally, she's got a really solid game to build upon. But we mentioned it already. You know what you're getting in Cayetano. I think it's safe to say we know what we're getting in Maddie Sieg. Um, you know what you're getting in Snow Han, Naomi Chung as well. But now with the addition of a Charney, now you have uh, Sloan Mora, Charney, Piper. I think Rodeloso coming over from Princeton. She had a ton of double success there, which is something the Tigers need. Uh, excuse me, the Trojans need. But it just gives you an eighth option as well. You don't need all of those players to click. You just need really one of them to be playing well at any given moment. Because if one of them is playing well, you feel like you can rely on your top four, not necessarily to get you three points in every match, but just to keep you competitive in everything. And if one of those other four players, again, Rodoloso, Piper, Mora, and the other freshman, Emma Charney, is clicking. And Kane. Yeah, and Koenig, thank you. Now this team has depth. Like, now this team has a roster where you feel like one through six, maybe not North Carolina tier still, but against just about anyone else, and certainly in their conference, they're going to have a shot. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, every match calculus here is different, and the strength of this team is certainly going to be in that top three. There are only three teams that have three players with UTRs above 11. USC is one of them. Can you name the other two? UNC. Yeah, it's a gimme. Texas. No, 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 Pepperdine, Pepperdine. No, 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 I said it before. I said it before you said it. It was coming out of your mouth. Listeners, it was coming out of his mouth. Yeah, don't. Uh, (laughs) Westoff, cut his audio so you only hear me saying it. Uh, So those three players, right, you feel really good about as your top three. Naomi Chung has the experience at number four. And now you're looking at Charney, who I would say. Do you mind what's the power six for for uh, USC? Not to cut you off, but as because for those of you that don't know, Universal Tennis, formerly UTR, they rebranded. Shout out Nina Pantic. Um, they offer you power six. So what are the six best UTRs added together for every college team? What do you have USC at? It is sixty four point two six, which ranks what in the nation? It Roughly ranks top ten. <clears throat> 
outside the top 10, given how much time it's taking you to count, would no, seem to indicate. No. So I was on different pages. It's seven. <laughs> oh, okay. Sure. So team strength. Yeah. They're really yeah. strong up top. Carry on. They're really strong up top. Uh, and then to your point, you know, you have Naomi Chung. You probably slot in there at four, given her experience playing that role of uh, linchpin. You really like probably Emma Charney at five, given her success. But, you know, again, that's what you're talking about with Piper. If Piper then is able to slot down to six, right? She was splitting time between four and five. You feel really good about that top six and you have the pieces like you talked about at seven and eight to slot in people if if need be on any given day. Yeah. I mean, you look at the current ITA rankings and again, it's preseason. So you probably take them all with a grade of salt. But Sieg is ranked number two. Yep. Snohan is 17th. Cayetano is 24th. Charney is 83rd. Chung is 96th. It's a really good start for the Trojans on paper. Five of the top 120 ranked players in the country. Really good place depth-wise for USC to be. Now, again, some of it's projection. How It's one thing to have success in an individual fall event, but when you're playing, you know, Georgia, ITA kickoff weekend for Sieg, and she's taking on a Viedmanova or Riasco or a Leah Ma, whomever it may be, that's a really tough match, certainly, on the road, and we'll see how she responds. But even in the doubles, Cayetano and Sieg ranked at 20. So you feel like maybe you have a piece there team-wise. That said, you know, again, you listed the strengths, and I do think they're pretty clear. I think they're going to—they should win two of one through four every time, right? Like you feel like they're putting two points on the board somewhere in those four discussion, uh, in those four points. I think by the end of the season, six should be a strength relative to the rest of the field as well, right? Like the world where USC gets to the round of 16 at the NCAA tournament, it's because with their depth, Piper or Mora, whomever it is, is better than UCSB or better than a Santa Clara or better than – I'm trying to think of the West Coast teams that are always in that USC region, a Denver you know, hypothetically, you know what I mean, right? I feel like nationally, I like their six. I just don't know who it is yet. Would you consider that a strength? I don't think six needs to be a strength for them. Because if six is a strength, you're saying just up and down the lineup, they're strong in every position, which arguably well, well, certainly— this, That's why I'm saying they're top 10, just to clarify. It, like Not relative to the very best, but why they would be a top 10 team and in contention for top eight hood is because they do have that depth. I think they do. Uh, is it a strength even relative to their top of the lineup? No, right? And I think that's one of the— one of the concerns with this team is that that's what we would say last year about them, right? Is that they bring in a top three. And then if those top three don't click, you kind of see what happened in 2022. But yeah, I really like them around that five position. I have a little bit more questions about six, but whoever plays five, I feel really good about. Yeah. I mean, Cherney, if she clicks, Sieg clicks, this, this is a team. And so I, I do think they have a lot of pieces. Now, again, what are the weaknesses I think it's it's twofold. It's the doubles because, yeah, we know Cayetano, Sieg, you put two talented players on a court, sometimes it just works. Um, that's one half of the equation. But, like, again, this was a team that struggled in doubles all season long. And when you're working in so many new pieces, I know Rodoloso had success at Princeton, but 
that was with Princeton Tigers, not anyone on this USC roster. And certainly you're working in a couple of freshmen into the doubles lineup. All due respect to Sloan Mora, Grace Piper. They weren't great on the doubles court last year. I think doubles is an issue for them. And then again, they are relying on two freshmen. The best version of USC needs two freshmen to click. And that's just a tough thing to ask, always at the elite ranks of college tennis. That would be my assessment of the weaknesses. What would you add? Or thoughts? I think those are both fair. I think doubles is certainly um, a weakness, which is a little bit ironic just given the doubles pedigree of this USC program, right? You know, uh, Sabrina Santamaria, KK Christian partnering to be one of the best doubles teams that we've seen Mm -hmm. in NCAA history. They've now gone on to pro success. You have um, uh, Angela Kulikoff now breaking into the top 100 of the rankings. They have a very strong doubles pedigree. So uh, it's certainly possible that they turn this around uh, in 2023. I think... I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I do think whoever plays six, I you know I'm curious to see who ends up there. I might not have as many doubts about you know Maddie Sieg and Emma Charney. I think they will both acclimate quite well here based on what we've seen. We actually have some data to suggest that, which is helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess the one thing to add is Naomi Chung and injuries, right? Yeah, She's and, and Snohan. To- and Sohan, I think those are exactly like the two uh, potentially tenuous situations where if one of those things goes away, now things start to change a little bit. Yeah, I also just think, again, this is a team that after last year, it's the pacing of themselves. It's not let two losses in a row become a third consecutive loss. And just like you can't be top 16 if you lose eight out of nine. You just can't. And look. Allison Swain won what? Eight national titles at Williams? Or it was Williams, right? I'm not blanking. Yeah, she was at Williams. I don't know if it was eight. I think it's eight or 25. There was a lot. Let's put this. It's not fewer than eight. It might be more. Um, Allison Swain's a winner. Like, I have no doubt in her ability to assess this team and be like, this is where we messed up last year. And, you know, Elizabeth Bagley, their assistant, coming into her second year as well. There is just more continuity amongst this group. And again, like, You're adding two really good freshman pieces plus the grad transfer, but this is a core that played together for the most part last year. It was Cayetano, Han, Chung, Piper, Mora, Koenig. They've gone to war together. This group has some continuity, and I just think like they'll – after losing to Utah last year, you just feel like that's a thing this group would be like, we're never doing that again. Like we're not blowing the easy ones. We might lose a match and you look at their schedule. It's pretty tough. Like at Texas, that's not an easy match. And shout out to Coach Swain for scheduling the tough ones. Pepperdine coming to Mark Stadium. That one's not going to be easy. Princeton has been very, very talented over the course of the past few years. I even really like the Pomona Pitzer uh, scheduling from uh, Coach Swain. Shout out to that. But like at their D3 roots. Yeah, exactly. They're at the Arizonas this year. That's not easy. They're at UCLA to end the season. That's not easy. Of course, they'll play UCLA home and home. But then the big one at Georgia for kickoff weekend. And that's probably the last dagger to the side of Coach Swain from any underperformance in 2022. It's that they didn't finish as a top 16 team. And what is fascinating, and maybe I'll ask this to Coach Swain. In fact, I'm putting it on the list. When you pick Georgia, 
did you think Leah Ma was going to be back this year? Because I do wonder with Ma not playing the NCAAs and all the uncertainty there, and you know we didn't know about Vecic at the time either. Georgia on paper looked a lot more appealing six months ago than they did now. Shout out to the kickoff draft. We're not doing that argument again. But uh, I was yeah. about to go right in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think we've done it before, right? Like, sure. Well, People know let's, our thoughts. Let's not start the season that hot. Yeah, we can, we can work our way we can move into on. it. We can move yeah. on. Okay, that's fine. But, I mean, looking at the schedule, it's not easy. Like, and they're playing credit to them. They've got a doubleheader January 19th, doubleheader January 21st. They are diving head in into this season against the San Diego team. That was pretty good last year, by the way, on the 21st. Um, I mean, I like the schedule. I like the fact that they're going to get the matches in, Jay. What, what, as you look at this, as you look at this team, you look at the schedule, you look at the conference, you know, what are your thoughts? I think you hit the nail on the head with the the Georgia stuff, right? I remember looking at that kickoff draft and this was a Georgia team who was without Liam for the SEC championship and NCAAs. Uh, I don't think any of their players played in the uh, individual tournament. It, it felt like maybe an opening. And I remember thinking, okay, Hey, this could be, you know, USC uh, on upset alert there with, with Georgia. Now with Liam back and back in, better than ever it looks like uh and questions around deckage eligibility look that'll be a great match for usc to play it'll be a great way to acclimate some of these freshmen that we're talking about to one of the greatest uh collegiate atmospheres for sure the downside is i'm not sure they get through and that hurts because then that's three matches you don't get at the uh at the indoor tournament hurts for the ranking is hurts the big, for the ranking that we can reset is again if you don't make the national indoors ask Michigan last year who was great during the Big Ten season ask Arizona State who was unreal during the Pac-12 yep. season versus asking Auburn who ultimately got to host or Ohio State who ultimately got to host or even Florida who ultimately got to host like three matches against top 16 competition makes the difference a hundred percent, particularly when you're not in a conference called the ACC, yep. right? When you're not playing <laughs> top 10 teams week in, week out. Now we can have the Pac-12 conversation. I think that this is a step in the right direction for the Pac-12 this year, but it is not the Pac-12 of years past where Cal, UCLA, USC, Stanford are all top 10 teams and they are kind of getting the benefit of playing each other during the regular season, playing a conference championship. So that also factors into the potential ranking situation for USC. Look, I love the match at Texas. That's a great matchup for them um, going on the road again. This can be a battle-tested team as they come to the Pac-12 season. Ultimately, you know, they made the round of 16 in 2019 and 2021. They failed to make that round last year. Table stakes here for this team is getting at least back to the round of 16. Absolutely. And, you know, LMU, who lost a couple of pieces, yes, but has been a top 40 team over the course of the past couple of years. That's week. That's match number one. That's day or match number two, excuse me, day number two matchup-wise of the season. I mean, so let's have the conference conversation now. I think the Pac-12's up. Like, I think the Pac-12 is trending in the right direction. Now, UCLA is not the UCLA it was of the 2010s or obviously, you know, that it's been the past two centuries. They're a little bit below that pace. Certainly feels like they are 
spoiler alert, they're not in our preseason top 10. That's the first time that would have happened in memory here at Crack Rackets over the past five years. Yes, they are not their best, but Stanford looks really good. Once again, on paper this season, Arizona State had a really good fall, really good ending to last season. I think they're a top 25 conversation team. I think Arizona continues to improve. Utah tennis is just a thorn in the side. Like it just, they are always a tough out, especially that traveling to Utah. I mean, Washington has been in a pretty good place of late. Washington State hasn't been horrible of late either. Like, okay, if you're asking me who are the top eight teams, there's only two. It's Stanford and USC who will be competing for top eight seeds, you feel like, this year out of the Pac-12. But I actually really like the depth in the conference, and so that's why I think if this Trojan team comes out relatively unscathed, like losses maybe to Stanford and maybe one more, like that, they will be tested, to your point, throughout the course of the year. They'll be tested, but the question is, do they have the wins, right? And I agree with you that the Pac-12 has... Um, has a pretty strong like middle layer of those teams that are around the 40-ish, 25 to 45, we'll say, and we have more teams venturing into that category. The question, though, is that those wins aren't going to get you to be a top eight seed, and what you need to get are those top 10 wins, and there's just might not be a lot on the board for this USC team if they don't make it to indoors. So, they're going to probably it, have to beat Pepperdine or Stanford if they don't make the indoors. Like, I mean, if they go relatively unscathed in the Pac-12 season, they should be top 16. Like, they should absolutely be in the conversation agreed. there. But I'm saying if they want to be a top eight seed, you're right. If they don't make the indoors, it's like, boy, we better beat Stanford at least once. And it would really yeah. help if we get a Pepperdine win, too. And you better hope Stanford makes indoors. Yeah, sure. Right? We saw that during the 2021 season in the Big Ten, right, where you only have, like, one Ohio team, State, yeah, and that, but then at least there's some, um, some well, wins. And Northwestern kind of, made it that year, exactly. So, the double so you can up, distribute yeah. the wins a little bit if you beat those teams. So it, there is definitely, it's definitely doesn't feel totally in their own destiny this year, and that's one of the drawbacks uh, of not being in the ACC um, in women's tennis. But look, ultimately, round of sixteen is what they should you know, what they're shooting for. That is a, a step forward. I do not think it's out of the question for this team to be a top eight team, right? They have the talent on paper here. It's about clicking, particularly if you have Cayetano and Maddie Sieg firing on all cinders, cylinders, arguably those are two top 10, maybe even on, on a shorter list of, of caliber players. No, it's crazy that Cayetano Sieg might be better than Cayetano Ewing. Or not might be, like, is expected to be better. Yeah. And we had really high expectations for them last year. So with that in mind, let's get into the projections. Let's get into the predictions. It's impossible to predict a doubles lineup, like a fool's errand. So we're not going to do that here. <laughs> yeah. But singles lineup, Jay, what do you see yeah. for the Trojans this year? Ugh. So, I mean, the cop-out is one-two is split between Maddie Sieg and Cayetano. Uh, I think they can do that based on Sieg's fall. I think you start the season with Cayetano at one, and you I play think it's Sieg plat- at two. Platoon system. Like, they'll do a lot of what they did with Ewing and Cayetano last year. Yeah, but I mean, that but was it's not going to mean the same. That's what you're right. It's it's not like with the same connotation, but I wouldn't be surprised if they split the number one matches 50-50. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I, I think you start um, seeing it too, and then 
she starts winning, you move her up to one. Let uh, me just also say on that topic, my coach, Ed Nagel, shout out, probably the the person to blame for why I do what I do today. He always would tell me the story of Frisky. Back in 1987, I played number one and Dan Goldberg played number two. And by the end of the year, by May, he'd be like, I was just toast. Like I had nothing left in my legs. Like your body's just dead. And like that's why I lost in the quarterfinals of NCAAs. And that's why Goldberg playing two all year was fresh because he was popping people. That's why he made the NCAA final. He's like, flash forward to 1988. Goldberg plays one all year. I play two. Who goes further in the NCAA tournament? He's like, I did because I had the fresher legs. And so that's an anecdote I always think about when I allude to the platoon system and my fondness for it is that I think it works. Like it really sucks to put a hundred percent burden on a number one player for an entire year. Cause that's just like 30 really high level, high stress matches. Yep. If you can, if you have a legitimate opportunity to divide things up, I'm of the coaching philosophy that you should do it. And I think USC has those two players and we'll talk to coach Swain about this. But I, I'm putting it on my list of questions to ask. Um, but I think, like, I would be in favor of the platoon system. What do you think? I, particularly when you have two players like this from an experience standpoint who are in very different, you know, stages of their career, right? Cayetano has started as, you know, a, a warrior at, at two, at three. She's moved up to be the number one player in the country. She took those knocks last season. You know, she probably has the legs, has the know-how to to withstand some of that during during the season maddie sieg freshman right you maybe don't expose her to that until you want to flip her on certain days right and say hey now you're up but to put that burden on a, a freshman is a really tall order and a tall ask so i think you'll see some splits throughout throughout the year but i think majority probably skews cayetano at one i bet cayetano plays one against san diego i bet sieg plays one against san diego state that's the sort of, you know, the double headers. I bet we see them switch well, laterally. Yeah. But no, I agree with you. I wouldn't be surprised if, again, conference season. Maybe you play Sieg one at home. Maybe you play Cayetano one on the road. Like, again, it wouldn't surprise me if you switch them up. But I agree with you directionally. That's the top two. What does the rest look like? I think Snohan is pretty firmly at number three there. I think some would even argue that she is also in the conversation with Cayetano and Sieg. Um, people are, are are high on her upside there. I would say she's pretty firmly there at number three and probably moves up um, on match days where you don't have both Cayetano and Sieg in the lineup. So she'll definitely get reps in the top of the lineup. Um, yeah, no, just to add to that, I think from a game style perspective, her athleticism, her creativity, boy, does that thrive at the three spot. And I do wonder the power, like her versus Yepafanova, just like hypothetically, you feel like Epifanova might have some weapons to overwhelm Snohan with. You're going to see less of those players at the number three spot where like, she will just slice and dice you, angle you to death, work her speed. I love Snohan at three. So I agree with you from a level perspective. She's got the goods, but like the idea of throwing her at three, mm, that's, a, that's probably the best spot. The Trojans three, or maybe it's the four if you think Chung, but I think the Trojan three is the best spot in their lineup. Yeah, I mean, they're going to be favored at number two in a lot of these matches, yep, though. But but if it's not, let's say Han plays two and it's Sieg at three or whatever permutations you want to do. You just really like the Trojans third player, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that would be my argument. But carry on. 
No, I think that's fair. So I think at four and five, I think you have a very similar situation to Maddie Sieg and Aaron Cayetano in Emma Charney and Naomi Chung, right? I think you have one more veteran player in Naomi Chung, freshman Emma Charney. I think these players slot in initially at four and five, Chung at four, Charney at five. Could I see a world where Charney moves up to four, Chung moves down to five? Absolutely. Do you get the wins for Charney and get that confidence going as a freshman at five? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that directionally. By the NCAA tournament, who's playing four? Mm. I'll go with Charney just you know, from an, an upside perspective. I'll go Chung because I think they're going to be like, we're going to keep you at five. You're winning a lot. Um, and yeah. then six, I go Piper. I really liked Grace Piper's game last year. I think she's going to thrive at six because I don't know how those players are going to – like the number six position player is going to hurt her. Well, yeah, and that's what you like about this lineup, right? You yeah. Piper, who split her time at four and five. Now she's down at six, yeah. right? That's a great – that's a winning combination for USC. Um, so I think she's definitely the one who starts at six. I would put uh, Koenig uh, there at seven behind her um, yeah. uh, to start. And why – okay, so let's – I'm throwing one more at, at you in the mix I didn't have. Uh, one more question as we look at that lineup. Why are they number 10 and not number four? Because, again, when you look at that lineup, on paper, they have a really good top four. They have really good depth. Why isn't this team higher, I suppose, is my final question to you. Well, it's a combination of factors, right? I mean, look, all of these teams are good, right? Yeah. There are teams that can compete with— I'm really glad you said that because that's what I'm trying to establish th- with this question. <laughs> but carry on. So it, it really just depends on what team you're stacking them up against, right? On why we have them higher, because there are teams with a higher top three, not many. That is like very clearly a USC strength. There are teams that have much stronger five and sixes. There are teams that have a much more proven track record in doubles, right? There are teams that don't have the new pieces of a, Maddie Sieg, they don't have two freshmen coming into the lineup. They don't have two players who are kind of returning from injury, right? Who don't have those questions. So it's whatever, you know, pick your flavor of the month. But like, ultimately, there are nine players who are as good as this USC team, which just says a lot about the strength of college tennis. 100%. I love Cherny. I like Piper. They're not Yarlagata and Tran. We'll just yeah. say, or they're not even, you know, again, uh, Sophie Abrams and whoever wants to play five in that NCC. Maybe it's Ren Shelley or whomever it is that's playing five in that spot. It's just like the depth a little bit higher are just that much more proven commodities than a Cherney, than a Piper. And so we're not penalizing USC for their lack of depth. It's rewarding those other teams for having the experience alongside of that depth as well. And then, Again, the uncertainty for doubles, the really tough kickoff weekend scenario. Again, just if you don't make the ITA indoors, life becomes really hard from a rankings perspective. And so that will be a struggle for this USC team. With that said, as we look at the predictions, I'm going to offer a couple of questions your way. You tell me your thoughts on them. Okay. Does this team lose a match to UCLA this year? Yes or no? These no. are the f- questions Trojan fans really want to answer. <laughs> no, they don't. They go 2-0 against UCLA. I agree with you. Do they beat Stanford? Conference tournament or regular season? It's at USC for what it's worth. 
they beat Stanford at home and they lose in the conference tournament. See, that's how I know you come from my school of podcasting because that's just like from my brain to my mouth. That's exactly what I was like. The second I asked the question, I was like, that's what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> so I disagree with you. I think Stanford sweeps them then just for the sake oh. of disagreement. Do they lose another funky one? So like let's circle the funky ones at Arizona State. I'll tell you what. At Oregon on April 16th, Sunday, like after it's, it's a one match weekend where you're just at Arizona on a Sunday, or excuse me, at Oregon on a Sunday, I think they're going to win that match. But like Eugene's a tough freaking place to play. They're at Washington State, at Washington, right after the month of February. Do they lose a funky one? So. <laughs> I didn't mention this when I was talking about like the other teams here. Mm-hmm. There is a higher funk factor with this USC team than there are these other teams in the top nine <laughs> because they just, they lost eight of nine. They lost yeah. six straight. Like that is unheard I had to ask of. The question. It's unheard of for these top six teams. So yes, I think they do lose a funky one. I think the difference here is that maybe it's one match, right? Rather than a string of six. And I think this lineup is sort of poised for that because you do have, you know, Aaron Cayetano is an excellent player, but is sometimes prone to not as strong days. You have some injuries, player players that are prone to injuries. You have the freshmen, some of these road trips. I think Coach Lili Farood talked about this uh, on your interview with her when she was talking about, you know, Connie Ma as a freshman and that those road trips to these far off places where you're flying and you're not just driving, you know, in the state like those are big changes particularly in the pac 12 you have altitude changes that you don't have in a lot of other conferences there's a lot of factors with the travel so yeah they definitely i think will lose a funky one yeah it's again the question had to be asked there's also an opportunity i'll tell you what if you get a win first of all if you beat georgia and you make the national indoors now the whole usc conversation about the season is different but if you get a win over texas or you get a win over pepperdine or you do ultimately sweep a UCLA or, you know, again, take care of the easy stuff, the opportunities are going to be there. And so I ask you, top 16 for USC, yes or no to end the year? Will they yeah. Will they host a region? Yes. I agree with you. Will they reach the final stage of Orlando? Keep in mind, you're talking to a guy who typically has 13 quarterfinal teams to end the year. So if you want to cheat, I won't be offended. So, you know, I I wish the Sweet 16 was in Orlando. It was in Orlando in 2019 and 2021. It is only going to be the Elite Eight this year. I think they make Orlando for two reasons. One, one, they like Orlando. They have been there in both 2019 and 2021. This year, Orlando is host to all divisions, D1, D2, D3. You can't tell me that Allison Swain eight-time NCAA winning coach of Williams, a D3 program, doesn't will this team to be there on site for when they host all divisions. It's a very, very good narrative to play. And the tennis gods have sent us signs here, again, with this being Peaks and Valleys week on the mini break. And we start with USC. Look, their ceiling is that high. Like, again, if the freshmen are as good as they have looked over the past year, this team has depth. This team has strength up top. If they are even, if they win 
of their doubles points. I mean, if they can get to two-thirds, wow. But if they can win 60% of their doubles points, you just feel like they have a path to three singles victories in every match that they play. That said, once again, I think you and I fundamentally disagree. Well, there's two huge question marks when making these quarterfinal predictions. A, is Pepperdine going to have eight players by the start (laughs) of the season? Because, like, if they only have six, I'm sorry. I just don't think a six-player roster in today's age with the injuries and the wear and tear of the season can make it to that quarterfinal round. But if they have a seventh and eighth player who are functional, like, then they have to be a quarterfinal spot because aren't they – they're one of the top two teams in Power 6. Or, again, you mentioned the stat of the over-11 club. Like, they're in it. Um, and then there's one other team we disagree about that I don't want to give a spoiler to, but we'll do that disagreement when we get to the show inevitably, uh, when we get to their preview pod. So that's what we call a tease folks in the business. Coach Swain has yet to make a quarterfinal and you're right, man, is that narrative juice? (laughs) That narrative juice is good, Jay. That was a good little, (laughs) that was a good little exclamation point to the show. You know, I like that. I'm just looking at who I would exclude. No, I can't do it. I can't do it. I love USC, but it speaks to how freaking good some of these teams are that we're going to talk about. And I will always say last year, we didn't predict Virginia to win the national championship on the men's side. But if you go listen to that preview pod, Chris, Matt, and I literally make clear, like, look, in any other season, Virginia would be the unequivocal national uh, title favorite entering the year. But because of the COVID stuff and how things are, Things are still different in college tennis. I think in every other year, USC would be an unequivocal top eight. And you feel like, man, if the freshman click, the jump is now, are they an inner circle team? You just can't say that with the depth, the strength, the COVID transfers of some of the rosters above them. And so I say round of 16, but they just miss out. And like, again, why I have them missing out is because they're not going to be a top eight seed because that Georgia regional is really freaking tough. And so I would have them just missing out. But I think it's going to be a fun year for the Trojans. Like, I don't think eight of nine is going to happen. I think they're going to be in the mix all year long. I think whomever they play in that, it, it's just lining up to be Pepperdine USC in the 7-10 matchup again. And boy, revenge factor part two on top of making the all division final. Now we're talking, mmm, mmm, mmm. I'm still going to go round of 16, though. With that said, any final thoughts on the USC Trojans before we wrap preview pod number one? No, this was good. These, you know, the next nine are going to be tough. Yeah, it's going to, it's only going to get more fun. I'm determined to actually, I think I might just stick with my rankings with the predictions and just straight up like top eight are all going to be quarterfinals or better. Now I might divert in between and say, I have you going a little higher, you a little bit lower, but I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to stick with the, my, our top eight as my quarterfinalists are better and then make some picks in between. But so USC just missing out on my end. Jay does have them as the number uh, as a quarterfinalist. Now, I do also want to mention we talked about the honorable mentions earlier, Jay, before I let you go. You and Ethan, no ad, no problem. It felt like a dagger to my heart to see you guys talk about who the next Oklahoma is because we must have that conversation off the record. Very frequently. Um, That said, it was a really good show. And I'm curious, again, what other topics like that, what you guys are going to cover as you guys preview the 2023 season. Thank you. Well, I figured we were doing our top 10 this week. I had to get some, you know, 
uh, Dark Horse yeah. content out there. So yeah, release that. Um, it was a fun show to do. I won't spoil my next Oklahoma. I'm feeling really good about it though. Uh, I'm feeling. Um, so I was going to disagree. Well, do you want to do? I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil it. Go listen to the show. Go listen to the show. But okay, so you disagree? No, it's not that I disagree. It's that I don't think they count as an Oklahoma because Oklahoma was further under the radar than the team you're referring to. Like, I, I think the team you're referring – do you want to give away the team or no? <laughs> uh, no, I will not give away the team. <laughs> okay. But okay. I, I strongly suggest people go listen to the episode. No ad, no problem. I will say this. There is no next Oklahoma True. this exactly. year. Exactly. We had not seen an Oklahoma in decades, so – what they did was really special this past year, but there are a lot of dark horse teams, right? That can make deep runs. We've talked even about a USC who just lost eight of nine matches last season. Coach Swain will only say it. That's the last time I'll say it, but right. <laughs> not often does a team like that go on and say, yeah, they're a top 10 team. We feel good about them. And I think they're going to be in the quarterfinals. So there's so much depth. There's so much talent, you know, is there that like, first ever run for a program. I don't know. There's a lot of talent up there at the top, uh, but I do feel good about this team making a, a much better run than they have in past years. All right. I like to hear it. Well, with that said, number 10 in our preseason ranking, just beating out the Texas A&M Aggies are the USC Trojans. Of course, this is show number one of 10 shows we will have for you, previewing our Division One women's top 10. Of course, on the men's side, we're going to get rocking and rolling as well. Chris Halliores will be joining me over there. Jay will also be joining me. I'm not sure if on every men's pod, because I won't lie, even trying to schedule this week, Jay, I was like, holy bejesus. I was like, okay, because we're trying to do a podcast a day on all three of our shows. And my brother turns 30 this weekend. Shout out to Eric, who will not be listening to Minute 68 of a podcast, but uh, of mine. Um, but he turns 30 this weekend, so I'm going to do a trip with him and his college roommates, whatever. And so I'm trying to record in advance this week. Oof. We got a lot of shows these next couple of days, <laughs> let me just say. And so I apologize if I'm not able to properly coordinate with you on the opening men's shows but as we continue to go through we're just going to hear a lot of john parsons folks as we get rocking and rolling again no ad no problem blog podcast people can follow it all you're going to start writing for us here at crack rackets as well at j tweets tennis at j tweets tennis thank you for the final plug as well and yeah we're going to be rocking and rolling so folks we hope you buckle your seatbelt and join us on this ride of course a shout out as always to our super producer daniel westoff who has a f- of an editing job to do day in day out and truly makes all of our content possible here at crack rackets with that said final word goes to you jay any final thoughts before we wrap show number one Go Trojans. Yeah, fight on, I believe, <laughs> fight is on. the expression that oh, you're they right. use. But with that said, for the fantastic John Parsons, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jay, for the first time in this 2023 college tennis season, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.